Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces, and welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, in this podcast, we're going to talk about our Father's hallowed name. We'll lead off with Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and we'll have many other scriptures that we reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. But with our Father's hallowed name under attack, let's just dig right in. Right. Good uh, <clears throat> evening to everybody, or morning, depending on when you listen to this, out there in podcast land. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. Actually, it's Father, we have a problem. <laughs> well, with an archbishop, as we shall see shortly. Does his name continue uh, to be hallowed, or does it need to be hollowed and filled with the spirit of this age? Uh, the Lord's Prayer, the opening of it, our Father in heaven, may be problematic, says the Archbishop, but first let's remind ourselves what Matthew 6, 9 says. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right, and we're saying, it looks like to me they want to hollow his name and fill it up with the spirit of the age. Well, it might be good, what does hallowed mean? Hallowed means to hold as holy, to reverence it, the ultimate respect of all. Something sacred. Completely sacred, yet holy. I'm, I'm uh, reminded of uh, when they commissioned the, the Gettysburg uh, Cemetery, you know, the, on these hallowed grounds. Right, sacred. sacred. Yeah. Shouldn't They are not to be violated yeah. by secular foolishness or <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Uh, this is from The Guardian, July the 7th of this year. Quote, the Archbishop of York has suggested that opening the opening words of the Lord's Prayer, recited by Christians all over the world for 2,000 years, may be problematic because of their patriarchal association. In his opening address to a meeting of the Church of England's ruling body, the General Synod, Stephen Cottrell dwelt on the words, Our Father, the start of the prayer based on Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and Luke 11, 2 through 4 in the New Testament. I know the word father is problematic for those whose experience of earthly fathers has been destructive and abusive. And for all of us who have labored rather too much from an oppressively patriarchal grip on life, he said. I must interject, when I grew up, everything was patriarchal. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There were matriarchals, and they understood the patriarchals. I mean... Back to the uh, quote. The Reverend Christina Rees, who campaigned for female, female bishops, said Cottrell had put his finger on an issue that's a really live issue for Christians and has been for many years. Uh, she added, the big question is, do we really believe that God believes that male human beings bear his image more fully and accurately than women? The answer is absolutely not, end of quote. And in a month or so, I'm not sure when, we'll see, we'll have a, a podcast on the Southern Baptist controversy over whether or not to have um, female ministers, elders, and leadership of that sort. The uh, Christian expectation, however, in all this is we will keep on calling upon God as the Father, the Father that we're supposed to call upon, that we're told to call upon. Remember in Luke 11, it starts this way, whenever you pray, Say, Father. So Jesus tells us clearly there, say, Father. Uh, Now, Matthew says, pray like this, which gives you 
a little room to embellish it, like C.S. Lewis says, and I do that, and I know many others who do. But my point is, we do have it on record for Jesus saying, when you pray this prayer, say, Father, your name be hallowed. Yeah. So we've got the teaching of Jesus, and it is true to our experience as Christians, as we shall see, and the Trinitarian truth unique to Christians that we profess. But first things first, bear with us, addressing Christina Rees' question, mentioned previously that the males seem to uh, more fully uh, in, in, uh, dwell the image of God than women do, she says. Indeed, women, I'm going to agree with her, indeed women bear God's image equally with men. We have this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right. It's very clear. God created man, mankind, in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The parallel lines in the Hebrew verses clearly indicate that the male and the female together fully complete and bring to pass the image of God. And God blessed them. Now, but let's expand on a few things. God said to them, that would be Adam, Eve, be fruitful, multiply. We don't know how that's going to be done yet. Fill the earth and subdue it, meaning it's, it's not been brought into authoritative control yet, and that's going to be your job. And have dominion, that means after you subdue, rule over the creation the fish, the sea, the birds, and all of that. Men and women equally have the task of having dominion over the fish. It takes both the man and the woman to complete the image of God, to fully reflect God. Mm. However, in the matter of multiplying, having babies, and we here at Christian Expectations believe women have babies and men don't. Yeah. Having babies, there is a difference as to how that is done. Women get pregnant, men don't. The major role of women in this command of being in God's image is to bear children. As he, the Lord God, has already multiplied earth's inhabitants, so she would add the human factor. This is how they fulfill the command to be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Men fulfill it by being the begetter. And yes, we know, men sure got it easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Secondly, women fulfill it by helping in other ways, working side by side, literally, that's where she began, with the man. Listen to Genesis 2, 18 and 21 through 23. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh with place with flesh. And that rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Right. Keep in mind the word helper. I will make him a helper fit for him. That will come up later. And the word fit for him, if you have a, a footnote dealing with the Hebraic words in your Bible, as well as the Greek and New Testament, it'll tell you that literally it says there, I will make him a helper that corresponds to him, mirror image. Mm. And down there where it says he made the woman, literally it says, and he built her. But shouldn't be confused with servant. Shouldn't be conserved, yeah, with the, the way servant is usually understood. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, one who's close by and a helper, personal assistant, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, not the, the world's idea of what a, what a servant is, of course. Um, so corresponding to him. From this passage, we see that Genesis 1 was an overview of the creation of Adam and Eve as to God's image. Both of them, it takes both of them to fulfill God's image. Neither one can do it by themselves. While from Genesis 2, we learn that Eve was created later from the side of uh, Paul. Paul makes, excuse me, of Adam. Paul makes this point twice in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9. For man was not made from woman but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There we go. She was to be his helper. He is the primary in this scenario, the primary one, and she is the helper to help him accomplish uh, multiplying. She will do her part by bearing children and subduing and having dominion. Certainly raising children would come under that category for her. So, she was created to help the man after it was decided that Adam needed a special kind of help, one of his own. In this sense, the first to multiply wasn't the woman, but Adam, whose body, through God, produced Eve. 1 Timothy 2.13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Very clear, as Paul points out. The woman's help given to Adam would take the form of enabling Adam... Now, here we use the word enabling in the best sense, to lead the way of taking dominion over the earth and subduing it. Curiously, she might have thought she was doing just that when she resorted to doing the will of the serpent in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now, listen to this with that in mind, with the idea that she's taking this in. This will be good for me and Adam. This will work. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. Yes, and take good note of this. Eve and the New Testament is not blamed for bringing sin and death into the world. Adam is. Why? Because he was the main one responsible. He was there first. He was supposed to relay all this truth information to his wife, and then they would be governed accordingly. Yes, Adam brought sin into the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 on down, 
through one man's sin, the whole world's condemned. Uh, death, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, in Adam, all die in Christ, all will be made alive. So Eve is not blamed. She was culpable in the act, but Adam takes the hit. Yeah. He takes the responsibility. Yeah. For Eve, having babies while subduing the earth and exercising dominion with Adam would take wisdom. But the wisdom she learned was this. There is a way that seems right to a person, but it leads to death. That's in the book of Proverbs, stated twice. So it does take both to fully reflect the image of God. However, that is worked out. It turns out to be, of course, a division of labor, starting with how multiplying is done and then to help the man in his fulfilling of the commission. She helps him, meaning he leads her to follow him. Obviously, there'd be some gray areas where you would need wisdom to know how to deal with this and redivide the labor. But the standard does not vary. Only in the age to come will this way of multiplying and ruling and sharing dominion change. Listen to Luke 20, 34 through 36. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Uh, with marriage abolished among the resurrected saints, the way in which we will then, as men and women, reflect the image of God changes. One fact stays. God's people will still rule over the earth and have dominion with Christ, and that clearly would involve women. In that coming age, the ruling will truly be shared in ways that's not done in this present age. As Jesus says through the Spirit to the churches, Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Right, and that's addressed to both the men, uh, to Timothy, to give it to the churches, men and women, uh, which uh, he is an overseer. A future reign that is different from the one given in Genesis 1. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uh, criticizes the church of Corinth because they can't solve their own problems. And as you start off that chapter, he says, don't you know that the saints, that's men and women, will judge the world? Then he says, don't you know we will judge angels? Clearly, that's a different kind of ruling and having dominion than over the wildlife of the earth from Genesis 1. So in the next age, big change. Well, what has this got to do with not saying Father God anymore, as the bishop thinks? And uh, what about Ms. Rees and what she thinks? Just this. The standard for this age has not changed, and to use a modern feminist interpretation to undermine the use of the uh, phrase, our father, is to compound one era with another. In fact, the New Testament pattern of truth as to the use of the title father is clear and definite. So here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to look at the authoritative teaching of Jesus as to its use, that is, the word father as applied to God. Secondly, we have the Christian experience of saying it by way of the Holy Spirit, which testifies to our salvation. And thirdly, we have the Trinitarian revelation as to the way God has always existed and will exist. That is to say, his ontological being, to put it theologically. First, the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is the Father's kingdom, 
that's coming to earth. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It's the Father's kingdom that's coming to earth, which, of course, Jesus will rule over, administrate, and according to the Bible and the Timothy passage we read, and of course, you go to the book of Revelation, we will reign with him. But a time is coming when that kingdom will be given back to the Father. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 28. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subject and, uh, subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, that's one of those passages you want to unfold. So let's just do a little more unfolding. The kingdom will be delivered to who? To God the Father. Yeah. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. That's what Paul says. At the end of all times, at the end of all ages, God is still the Father and the kingdom administered by Jesus, his son, will be given over to him, the Father. And so God will be all in all. There is nothing in the rest of the New Testament that changes this command from Jesus as to how we are to pray. Our Father is in heaven, and it is to him primarily we are praying. Even if we address it to Jesus, for the simple reason, Jesus always does the will of the Father. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So if we send up a prayer to Jesus, Jesus wants to know if the Father approves, right? That they're yeah. on board with this. Uh, absolutely. Then we have the same thing, more or less, in John 8, 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. In other words, Jesus' response to our prayers will always be following the Father's will, just as he wanted it at Gethsemane. And even after cross and resurrection, the Father is still the Father to Jesus. John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The words of the resurrected Jesus, his father is still our father as well. And in praying, our father in heaven, your kingdom come, we bear witness to the truth that the kingdom administered and ruled over by Jesus is in fact his father's kingdom. Again, go back and read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 28. The son will ultimately, at some point in the ages to come, when everything has been subjected to him, the Son himself will subject himself to the Father, who rules over all, and who will then be all in all. The kingdom of the Father will be complete. There'll be no place where the kingdom of the Father does not reign supreme. That's what it means when he says all in all. This is an awesome and ultimately incomprehensible truth for us right now. And we'll only know what it all means when that comes to pass. But the point we're making is this. In the ages to come, the Son is still the Son because the Father is still the Father, from whom all families in heaven and earth get their name. That is to say, their origin is from Him because He's the Father. Such a reality should cause us to bow before the Father as Paul does, Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Note the emphasis on the Spirit's power and its connection with the Father. May he, the Father, grant us strength through the Spirit. This brings us to the second New Testament pattern of truth, confirming the confessing of the Father's name. Listen to Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, we Christians are in possession, and hopefully uh, he possesses us, the Holy Spirit. And so there are times when we cry out to God. Now, if we were of a Hebrew or Aramaic background, we would say, Abba, Abba. Uh, if we're Greek, the Greek word is pater, from which we get that accursed word patriarchal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we would be saying Father. So whether we're Hebrew or Gentile, there are times when we cry out to God as our Father needing help, needing deliverance. We're in a situation we think there's no help, no hope, and we need the Father. If we are truly sons and daughters of God, who is the Father, it is a natural, yet also supernatural confession to make calling God our Father. This is of the Spirit as a result of the gospel of Jesus, which of course is never going to change. Paul makes this point again about the Spirit in our life in Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Will we always be children of the Father? Yes, absolutely. Now listen to 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Yes, the love of the Father that he has given to us, that love where his children is the Father's love. And that relationship never changes. So we now come to the third reason our confessing the name of the Father will never change. And that's the Trinitarian truth of Scripture. And just let me say this, when I became a Christian, uh, people seem to be confounded with this, but I found it absolutely enthralling because it's unique. You find it nowhere else, only in a Christian religion. There's there's some so-called imitations of that, but no, it is, God is one. There's one God, and yet he dwells tripersonally. So keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we where all are things and through whom we exist. Right. There is one God. We start with the Father. God dwells tri-personally. The Father from whom are all things, meaning he's the fount. He's the originator of all things for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. At the same time that the Father is the fount, at the same time, Jesus is the medium, the conduit yeah. that we uh, get our blessing the from. vessel. Yes. So the Father is the fount of all things and all things pass through Jesus to us. And in this relationship, there is perfect division of labor. So let's take a look at John 10.30. 
I and the Father are one. There's the great truth. One, and yet note well the difference as to how we receive what the Father gives us. It originates with him, passes through Jesus, the ordained mean of all things, the ordained means of all things, and then it comes to us. Does this arrangement sound familiar? Adam and Eve, God's image. There's the division of labor in the Godhead, and so in the humanity that he created, one of the ways we're in his image. Where is the spirit in all of this? Remember, he's the shy member of the Trinity for this purpose. His purpose is not to draw attention to himself, but to Jesus, John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, listen again to that. The spirit who comes forth from Jesus is called what? The helper. The helper. What was Eve called who came forth from Adam? The helper. The helper. Now, the spirit as helper directs us to Jesus, our leader. Perfect division of labor. God, we who are in his image. This truth is emphasized in the next chapter, John 16, 14 through 15. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify Christ, not himself. On Pentecost, we see the outworking of this Trinitarian truth in Acts 2.33. And again, listen for the, the key word here about the Father. Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay, so let's break it down. Peter says he, that's Jesus, has been exalted at the right hand of God. And that would be obviously God the Father. And having received from the Father, so now you got the Son at the right hand, the Father there on the throne, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, there you have the third person. He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God is one, and yet he is three. That's his godhood. That's how he exists, and we are made in his image. Jesus, in his resurrection, ascension, is ruling over all from heaven, having been installed at the right hand of God the Father, and the Son is in accordance with the Father's will, and he has poured forth, sent forth the Holy Spirit. And thus it is that when we are baptized, the name of all three are pronounced over the repentant believer. One of the reasons is, as Paul would say, is because we're being renewed in the image of God. Yeah. All right. With the name of the Father. Matthew 28, 18 through 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Summing up, the Father is the fount of all things. He will always be the Father. It's his kingdom, and eventually he will be all in all. The Son is the conduit of all things, the means. And the Spirit is the activator of all things needed for the life and the love that God gives us. Uh, if we would look at, and we won't take time, but you can check it, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, where it's the Father who chooses us, the Son saves us, and the Spirit sanctifies us as we believe the truth. So we've got the Father who chooses. We've got salvation. You know, God has chosen you for salvation. That's Jesus through sanctification of the Spirit. That's obviously the Holy Spirit through your belief in the truth because we've got to 
cooperate with God in this. The old confessional creeds of the early Christians got it right. The Nicene Creed begins with these words. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible. And so we disagree with the archbishop who is caving to the craving of the spirit of this age without heeding the spirit of the ages through whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Let us not hollow out the Father's name to pour in the spirit of this age, but let us hallow the Father's name as the spirit gives utterance. And that's the Christian expectation. Indeed. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and you may have questions or comments about it. To that end, please post your questions or comments in our comment section on the podcast, or if you prefer, you can send us an email at eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the words and, the word expectations, all together, eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. We will use your comment where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until next time, keep looking up.